Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, we'll be concluding our conversation with Drs. Tony Coffin, Joe Buck, and Melanie McClellan about the SACSA organization and their experiences. When we left off last time, we were talking about um, some of the key issues and events. If you haven't listened to that episode, I really encourage you to listen to part one first. But at this point, we'll continue the conversation, starting with um, just some of the, the group's thoughts about why the SACS organization has continued um, and some of the factors that contribute to its persistence. Enjoy the episode, everyone. So you've alluded to this. I mean, you've talked about the people, you've talked about leadership and planning and family and community. Build on that, if you would, a little bit and in terms of the persistence of the organization, because there are lots of organizations that start, they sort of run their course or they're not managed well. What do you think it is about SACSA, its membership, its leaders, and its mission that has helped it be sustained over time? Why does it continue? If I could answer that first, and, it, and it's not, um, I'm not really referring to my role as executive director, but I do believe that the wisdom of the executive council in sort of responding to the needs of the times have helped to make us resilient. Mm -hmm. And I laugh because if you ask most members of the EC for the last 20 years, what their memory of Joe Buck is, it was, you must make $20,000 on the conference <laughs> because we didn't have any money and 9-11 really showed us we didn't have any money. And when I say that, at one point, you know, uh, Tony's already alluded to it, we were looking at like $63,000 of penalty for the conference and we didn't even have $63,000. And... I mean, Bill Kelso, in his wisdom, came up with a template that I basically require everybody to use who's doing the conference. And it shows you literally how much you're spending per person at the conference on each piece of paper. I mean, it's that detail. Today's young people are really offended by the fact that they have to be that, um, you know, managing, managed so closely. But saying that because of good sponsors and sponsor chairs and good conference chairs, we now have a half million dollars. We're worth a half million dollars. And that came from a very reasonable conference fee. We've never been expensive. Nobody else feeds as many meals as we do. And we do that for our graduate students primarily. But all of that has been good fiscal management and not only good, sometimes good fiscal management 
doesn't meet the needs of the people. This was good fiscal management that served our constituency well too. Yeah, I think yeah, I would add, when you're talking about the current issues, um, one thing I had thought about is that when I was looking back at my, my own personal notes, like I looked at my resume to see what I had on there. In many, many, very often, SACSA has done a task force or a special committee to deal with a current issue to figure out how to handle it. And I said, just in my list that I've been involved with, I was on a task force on racism in 1991. I was on a task force for SACSA's future in 2000. I was on the task force for the executive director in 2007. I chaired the task force on the journal in 2013, and I chaired the membership committee in 2014 when Ellen was doing her thing. Now, those are just the ones that I happen to have been a part of. There, and y'all are probably, there's probably 10 or 12 of those, but that there's an issue that might not fit into the normal committee structure. So let's get, and quite often that meant things like, as we went to Savannah a few times, for the one of these, we met in a, um, a, a room in an airport in Atlanta. Everybody could fly into Atlanta and we all went over there and met. So it was so it was like, let's get together and do what we need to do. So so when there's an issue that needs to be dealt with that maybe doesn't work well with the, with the structure, it's let's, who are the people that can help figure this out? Who are the problem solvers? Let's get them together in a different way and, and, and meet those. Ironic that you say that, Melanie, because my first SACSA involvement was mm -hmm. the chair of the task force on safety and security in okay. 1983 because we were putting in um, security measures, particularly in residence halls. Mm -hmm. um because there was an issue nationally with some events that occurred <laughs> um mm -hmm. that led to legislation and things we all know today uh but it was responding to a to a current issue that was yeah. my very first involvement in saxa in 1983 that was my first conference and i said i want to be involved in the next thing i know i'm chairing a darn task force I said, how did that happen you know again i blame gene tice for that but with all love and respect but um so yeah i think that the other thing I think Joe's point is a good one. I think we've never lost sight of being a high quality, affordable, professional organization for our members. Yeah, yeah. We have never lost sight of that. You, you don't know how long we debate any kind of fee, whether it's registration fee, whether it's a hotel fee. Sure. Um, there's so much um, concern for making sure that our members can have this experience, whether it's the conference or the association in, a, in an affordable manner. Um, so that I think that's helped us thrive as well. Uh, you know, I think that that's helped us. We, 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 we put out a good product and people see it and they are willing to be a part of that uh, as we think about it. Yeah, I had written down the two other things that I thought were the factors. One was that we had an active commitment to mentoring. When you were talking about one one of the strengths, I don't mean just to mentoring young people coming in the profession, but mentoring people to come up and be committee chairs or come and be yeah. vice presidents or whatever. The leadership, you know, I've worked with a lot of nonprofits in my life, and one of the problems sometimes with nonprofits is the what they call founder syndrome. Um, people won't let it go, and they don't help develop people beyond them. And so, it, it, but um, the SACS has always been very good about, here's a good person, let me get this person these skills. And sometimes it's people we knew on our own campuses, but other times it wasn't. Here's a person I was in this committee and we need to find a way for him or her to get more involved. And so helping develop them so they can take a leadership position. And, and that's huge. And again, having watched enough nonprofits founder because of, of that. Um, and then the second one I put down, I don't know how to put this down, but it's the openness 
the friendliness, the graciousness, the humor, sense of humor, I think all that has helped sustain. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And, and um, the atmosphere is not one that encourages conflict, it's one that encourages collaboration. It, I, mean, I mean, it encourages open communication, but not, um, but, but it's, it's, I think that has, I think that's our ethos or something. Yeah, to, to me, having been involved in numerous other organizations, we're not as politically oriented yeah, yeah. Uh, as some of those organizations. And I don't necessarily mean political as a bad thing. It's just, it's, it's much easier to navigate uh, SACSA because you don't have the political issues coming to play. You know, as Melanie said, you don't know who people are. You sit down by someone, you don't know if they're a vice president or if they're a grad student when you're having that conversation because the name tag doesn't tell you. Um, and I think she's right. So many people getting involved in SACSA is their first professional development experience. And they go on and mentor other people and mentor other people. And that mentor piece is huge uh, to our success. Um, when I think about people that have mentored other people to do that, we're a better organization because of that commitment. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about that to me too is we've tried for years and years and years at the conference to sign up to be a mentor and be a mentee. We do our best mentoring and menteeing in an informal way. Yes, Every time we've set it up where you have to sign up and you've got to have coffee one morning during the conference, <laughs> it just doesn't work. But, you know, Wayne King always says, I got involved as a graduate student because I got on the elevator and Joe Buck said, who are you? And we need to get you involved. And, and that was the case with, with him. But um, I also, uh, Melanie jogged my memory a minute ago. Michelle, I think the, uh, one of the keys to our success as an organization, especially being a regional, relatively small organization, is our journal. I think for, one, for finally, we know how to do the journal good well in a good way we have spent many committees and time trying to figure out how to do that and now that we finally went with the electronic journal which faculty was very much opposed to each of the other times we tried it but once the world went to that then it became very evident that we needed to do it that way too we make money off of it now, not much, but it doesn't cost us anything to operate really. Um, and I think it great, gives a great outlet for those people who are research focused in our organization, both graduate students and professionals. You know, research is absolutely about down here on my agenda because my love was out there with the people. My dissertation only got his as highfalutin statistics as percentages. So uh, you know how I feel about research. Uh, but to have that as a viable option for our members is something very important. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think there's a person, I, I think now, Tony, you can speak to this. That was pretty much out, but but Matt Varga was really involved in some helping us get some things technolo technologically at a different level than we had done before. Now I was I was out of the sort of the association, but 
when Matt started working with me and I, and I would say, yeah, Matt's our new faculty member. Oh, I know him because he did this, 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 and this, and this with technology. So I think he helped us move some things. That would be another current thing. And you know more details, but I think Tony. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were many of us who served as paper editors and we're like, dear Lord, how did we do that? Looking now, how did we, how did we manage that? So it was, it was Matt and several folks. There was again, a task force. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Which folks like Darius Means and some other people were on. Mm-hmm. that um, I think that might have happened during my year as president. Um, I think it did. To, think to so. respond to the change of where the journal world was changing. Um, well, yeah, I chaired that committee on the task force and we just weren't ready yet to go tech. Right. We were split mm-hmm. on it. And we just weren't ready to go yet because people felt so strongly about not doing it. But about two or three years later, it was okay yes. to go. So Yeah, in some ways, I think the journal is our least known um, mm-hmm. carrot that we really, um, it's a nationally known journal. I mean, yes, we're a regional organization, but the journal focuses nationally. It doesn't just draw people that are submitting from the Saxa region. We get people all over the country. So in some ways it's like our, it's a, it's a carrot that we have that we probably need to somehow better um, use it as a, as a reflection and a, a, a best practice of our organization um because i think joe's right there are people out there that really do uh, utilize that in class and in their work that they're doing uh with that and michelle you're you know you've been the current editor so you understand the the needs that people are or how they're using that document but sometimes i think we forget about the journal so i appreciate joe saying that well um, and and you know um uh, uh, one of the really important things i think is the fact that and I can't remember which of the members or faculty members or who was the one that pushed so hard in the last few years to make certain that we're going through the internet so that people can purchase copies and articles. Now that we do that, people know we're there. And before, if you didn't have a paper copy in your office, you didn't know about the Saxon Journal. And there's a word for that, that I obviously as a non-researcher don't know. But anyway, um, that has made us make money out of things because every month, Tony, you'll get you know, a check from Johns Hopkins and that other press that shows how many people have you know, done printed copies of our journal, so. Yeah, because there for a while we were electronic, but you only had access if you were a member. Mm-hmm. So right. that didn't really, I mean, yeah, no. that helped our members. It was a great member benefit, but it didn't help us financially. So then going to the next step, sort of help our members and disseminate the information. And that's what we're about. We're an organization that's about disseminating, creating knowledge. So how do, how do we share that with the rest of their student affairs and higher ed community? And that was the last step, Joe, to do that, was to go away from just internal electronic to more delivery that was open to other folks. So the journal is, you know, your words, Tony, a hidden carrot for the organization. What are some other things that, um, and maybe not necessarily hidden, but what are some um, practices, rites, rituals, gifts that are, at least if not specifically unique to SAXA, form this sort of compiled pool of traditions and history 
that do make Saxo unique? What are some of those things that, you know, every year this is going to happen or at the conference, you're always going to see this, this, and this. What are some of those things that come to mind? Oh my God, I'm laughing because I used to think we didn't have a lot of traditions until I tried to change the conference schedule as president. I know Lerald, I realized we had a tradition. We had a conference schedule and it's going to start and end this time. I mean, I, I learned that really quickly as a president because we were going to do some innovative things. And I realized people were pretty committed to the, oh, the yeah. structure of the conference. You know what I mean? Uh, and I don't know if that's a tradition, but I did learn people had an expectation that there would be two speakers and there would be this many breakout sessions and this many meals. Um, Although that's I, changed a little over the years because there have been times right. we've been lunch. There are times we've been at dinner. Right. There's times over the weekend. There are times we haven't. But but it took a lot to get to those. And then suddenly right. that was a tradition. Yeah. And it's, so that's been interesting. Um, just it's interesting when I think about traditions. Um, you know, I guess the one that comes to mind for me is the passing of the gravel. You know, I think that's unique to Saxa. This idea that it's a long story, way too long for this podcast, but basically that we pass a gavel from president to president, but we also pass a bag of gravel, which has a rock from all of the Saxa states in it to the, from president to president. And there's a long history with that. And if you go to the conference, you get to hear the story of the name change of Saxa and the history of those with Don Gehring and so again, some other key leaders that, that shaped our profession. That's a tradition I think that that I think about when I think about Saxa's the gravel uh, very much so. I had a hard time with this one. And the only thing, I, but I did think about, there are some events that I guess are traditional. We do MMI, we do NPI, we do the multicultural event at the conference. So there's some things that you always that are important to certain people. And those are sort of, um, you know, in, a, in different ways for people to get involved. So that is one thing that sort of occurred to me. There may be others. Those are three that come to mind to me that are ones that have been going on for a long time that aren't for necessarily the whole group, but that, that a group of people is very important for them. And Melanie, you, you made a great comment there that made me think about, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about and acknowledge one of the, um, strengths and pivotal moments in our history is our relationship with NASPA Region 3. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it is the Saxa Conference with NASPA Region 3. Yep. Um, and, you know, we had a really strong relationship and then it died for a number of years and then we brought it back. And it's with them that we do MPI and MMI. And we have a great working relationship with that group. You know, they have a board meeting at our conference in November. So, um, that, that relationship is another pivotal moment uh, in terms of, of our, our history and a, a tradition. It's become a tradition that they meet at our conference. Uh, to and that us. doesn't happen by accident because, again, right. that, that relationship has been strong. It has been weak or non-existent and became strong again because some people made it a priority um, and, and have, to, have to think about it because it's not an easy thing to make work. As Joe knows, again, another Blue River, another task force that did the memorandum of understanding mm -hmm. <laughs> between NASPA Region 3 and SACSA, uh, again, responding to a current issue because we're all committed to MPI and MMI and we wanted to make that continue to work because it benefits all of us uh, with that. And I think, again, as a piece of history for people that may not know, SACSA was in existence before NASPA Region 3 had regional conferences. 
So once the regions started developing everywhere, I mean, our regions overlap, but we already had a strong regional um, identity in a conference. So it was people didn't, it was kind of like the ACPA NASPA thing. You know, they don't want to give their own tradition. So we debate every five or six years whether they're going to combine or not. And we do it. And, and it was it. So that's the other regions don't have this because, and one of the reasons we had a regionalization had to do with this, with the struggles with integration early in the 50s, because we as a region were dealing with things that there was no place to talk about. And I say again, we, it wasn't me, but the people before us were doing that. And so SACSA came to deal with things that were uniquely Southern, unique to the South. And so by the time NASPA moved into regional things for everybody else, SACSA was already so well known. So, so that wasn't an easy thing to figure out is how do you deal with something in the national organization that wants to have a regional impact while you also protect this very important organization. Um, and so it, it, there's not an easy answer to it. So it's taken a lot of people to pay attention to that, to make that work. Yeah, that's a, it's a unique relationship because other NASPA regions don't have that strong mm -hmm. generalist organization in their region. And so we've had to, we've had to carefully have, as Joe knows, carefully have conversations and uh, uh, interactions to make that, to make both of us be successful. I, I think uh, there are two people that, uh, in terms of saying traditions and things like that, Rocky Renaissance always wanted us to have student affairs in our name because originally when we were SCPA, uh, we were not because it was a, sort of an offshoot of ACPA. But Rocky would every year, we, in my early years, we'd have a new motion. And he was also trying to change NASPAR at the same time, the national organization. Uh, secondly, in NASPAR Region 3, Bob Glenn, has been just a, a, a tremendous proponent of us doing that and having that relationship. On a fun note, uh, when you talk about traditions at the conference, you know, uh, every year close to conference time, I can count on getting an email from Bob Glenn that says, it must be Saxa time because uh, something about if it's Saxa time and then it must be time for us to go to dinner group and you're to invite new people with you. And usually on Sunday evening at that group, there's 40 or 50 people, some of whom you've never seen before <laughs> and others of whom have been coming to that dinner for years. Um, those informal traditions probably the reason people like to keep coming back. And that maybe when I was trying to talk about sort of the hospitality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It may be true at other conferences. I don't know, but at SACSA, um, you know, it feels intimidating to go to a conference by yourself or where you don't know anybody. But I have told people before at SACSA, you can walk up to a group and say, I don't know anybody here. Can I go to dinner with y'all? And they'll say, well, sure. Um, now I've always been with, with, uh, institutions that tend to drive vans, so we've driven a lot of people to dinner, but <laughs> but a lot of people to dinner to a lot of different. That's places. why they invited you, Melanie. <laughs> That's right. No, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, we thought it was so funny. I was sitting next to uh, Danielle from Mississippi State, and we loved it when the uh, Mississippi State uh, students won the um, case study case study thing because they accepted the award. They were watching it from the van um, <laughs> on the way home, and that is such a Mississippi State thing is vans. 
And then when I got to West Georgia, we would do the same thing sometimes so that the grad students could go. But, um, but my point is, I think there's that sense of hospitality. You still have to step out of your comfort zone to go and ask, because you can't look, because we've struggled with whether Saxo looks very clickish to people who are coming in from the outside, because we do enjoy each other's company and we do know each other so well, so we can look that way. Um, so you have to help people understand that, but, I've, but it's, it's a pretty easy thing to connect. If you just go up mask and say, I don't know how to connect. And someone say, well, here, come here. Um, I like that concept of um, informal traditions too, because I would be willing to bet if you talk to people who stayed engaged, it's like, well, you know, I always do, I always have lunch with this yes. group of people, okay. or yes. we always yeah. make time to talk about this issue or whatever it yeah. is. So, well, and we always know that a third of our attendees to at the conference are going to be grad students. Mm -hmm. That's, we know that. I mean, we, we draw heavily from them. So you, you have to plan for that financially, but it's, it is sort of an informal thing that we know. It's interesting you say that because um, over the years, Ellen Neufeld, whom I love like my own daughter, uh, and I have gotten to be so close. And my last conference at Winston, in Winston-Salem, um, I get up early and because Ellen's in California now and she was flying in for the conference. And I got up about 4.30 and went, got my coffee and started across the lobby and like hotels are, you know, very quiet. Everybody's in bed still. And suddenly coming in the front door was Ellen Neufeld who had taken an all night flight from San Marcos, California. We sat down, I went to my room and made her another cup of coffee because the coffee place was closed. And I had one of the dearest conversations I've had in years because it was just the two of us with nobody else coming up to speak and interrupt and in nice ways. And you know what I'm saying, but that I cherish that memory of being able, because it was our first time to talk after she became a college president. And I learned a lot from her, but uh, that is what sex is still all about to me. Yeah, the other thing that I, I think most people probably don't know is how, um, and we've learned this, I think the last couple of years, how really invested the past presidents are in the Earth's organization. You know, we've been meeting with him. And again, this was Jason Cassidy <laughs> who uh, to keep them informed about the year we had to cancel. And then this year, we started meeting with that group and Joe can attest to, it is a lively group and they really wanna know what's happening with SACSA. I mean, they, you know, some of them have been president 30 years ago. They really wanna know though. And that, that, um, that love for SACSA doesn't end when you retire or when you go do something else. And to me, that's a unique piece of who we are. And those past presidents are the best example. It was, it was like chaotic in that meeting. I mean, just people connecting and telling stories. And, and, I, and I know Michelle and I and Bo are working on this history project. We hope to do some podcasts with other presidents and maybe groups of them to talk about their years. And I think that's going to be so beneficial for folks to hear, uh, hear their, their experience with that. Well, and, and you know, in, in a two-hour podcast like we just did today, and hitting only the presidents. I mean, we haven't talked about Harold. We haven't talked right. about, um, I mean, I can just go through a list 
Suzanne Gordon. Yep. I mean, uh, people that are still so much a part of our history in terms of their own presidency and leadership, but they also want to know, I, I always laugh at them because they want to know what's going on, but they don't want to have to do it anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know, Suzanne will be quick to tell you, she loves living down there in Orlando or wherever it is she lives at the retirement village, the villages, and she loves to know about Saxa, but she doesn't want to chair a committee or be on a committee <laughs> or anything like that. And I think you find that with a lot of retired people and that's, that's fine, but I do think we need to keep up with those folks that still want to be involved with the so life, lifetime members, I think yeah. are a vital part of this group. Uh, and we keep them up to date also. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. a lifetime member and that's how I know about it. So right. I was just going to say the one thing Michelle and Bo and I've talked about with the history project is it's not just talk to past presidents, that there were other key people in this organization who were conference chairs or journal board editors who impacted our profession who didn't become president, you know, right. and we don't want to lose their voice either. And I, I think, Joe, you, that's a good point you make there of other folks who didn't, who didn't become president, but still impacted Saxa's growth and direction. And I know Michelle and Bo and I are pretty committed to, to trying right. to not, not just do the president or past presidents. I don't know if this is appropriate time to insert this, but we were going to talk about challenges and, and, and I, there's three other challenges, but the one I, that I do think, I love the, how much more technologically sound we are, but I do not want us to lose our printed records. Um, I didn't mention a while ago that I think one thing, you know, we now have, and I guess is it still there at Bowling Green? Mm -hmm. Yes. Bowling Green, yeah. and Bowling Green State University, a lot of people don't know, but they have archives, Bowling Green in, in um, Ohio, of many professional associations. So SACSA's archives are there. In a number of years, I was doing um, a project for one of the presidents and I went up there and went through them. And it's very cool. You can go in there and see, you know, old pictures and old programs and all those kinds of things. And that's great. But I thought this year when I was at the conference, it's the first time I've been back in a while. And I understand why we don't paperless and all those for a lot of reasons. But one of the things I think we're missing is it used to be when you were at that awards banquet, you had that book in front of you. And you could see that when you were bored, you could read the list of past presidents and read the past award winners. And, we, and that helped you begin to see the diversity of, of where people were from. And it made you familiar with names. And, it's, and it would also, it's going to make it more difficult 15 years from now for someone who wants to go and, and, and find the information. So I hope we can find a way to do some printed records uh, that people can look at when they're at a conference or, and not just have to go and find it on a website. This, I mean, that may be my age speaking, but I, but I, but I think, I think we lose something if we don't have, because I would discover things again, if I was sitting at the table waiting for someone to come in, I did, I learned things from reading what was in front of me. Like, Oh, I didn't know so-and-so won this award. Or I didn't know so-and-so was the president or, Oh, here's somewhere from the school I went to. So. Well, Melanie, you, that's, you that's, Melanie, that's a, excuse me, Tony, but that's a, as I close up the, Saxa office on the Armstrong Georgia Southern campus. I'm trying to call stuff so Tony doesn't have to get stuck with keeping paper records of things that are strictly historical, right. but likewise trying to get a huge box of stuff together to go to Bowling Green. Uh, and one of, uh, you know, 
one of the things you hit on that's so important, which is indeed a challenge, is things like the printed program booklet. And I'm, I love guidebook. I've gotten into it. I like having it on my phone, but I really miss having that book that I continued to look at when I got home. And, you know, on guidebook, we list the former presidents and things like that, but it's just not the same thing. And so we've got to figure out how to, you're exactly right. That is a, a challenge for us. I want to give yeah. you an example. If you go back and read that article by me, and I don't know if I'm the one that did it or someone else did it, but it's in there. It tells you this is the first year we had a program on alcohol. This is the first year we had a program on AIDS. This is the first year we had a, a program on LGBT. You can, because it's it's all printed there, so you can go back and look um, and say this is the first time we did this issue, or um, this was, and, and that I think is really important for for contextual. But maybe it's because I really enjoy the history part. So, yeah, but Melly, I think your point is a good one because you're the only person, you know, you have a unique perspective. You're the only person who's ever been to Bowling Green and seen it. <laughs> none of none of the rest of us ever have, and. I, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, maybe having a conversation with Shamboda and Kristen Walker Donnelly, the new historian, maybe we need to develop more of a, a formal plan for yeah. what we are going to collect. And, and it may mean we print the guidebook or somehow something that gives us that history. So maybe I'm going to put that on my to-do list. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, I that's think, a really I think the reason I went, I think maybe Cheryl was, Cheryl Burb was the president, I think, or maybe anyway, but I had just retired. And right. so I had a more flexible schedule than other people. And I, you know, went to school in Ohio. So it's like, Melanie, could you drive to Ohio and take a look at these things? Well, sure, I can do. And because because some sort of anniversary was coming up, but but it was for several reasons. I could take off for two or three days and go hang out in the library when a lot of other people couldn't do it because of where I was in my career and because I was comfortable, you know, finding my way around the campus and so. That's what, were your other, what, were, what were your other challenges, Melanie? You said you had more, there was another one? Well, it was actually in that 1985 article I wrote, I said, these are three challenges. I, I interviewed some people for that. Yeah. And, I, and they had three challenges, and I think they're still true. The first one was technology. And it was that technology is wonderful, but, but we went through, but, you know, but how do you keep from being overwhelmed by it? And uh, will it, substitute, will it um, take away the personal contact? And I think that this is truer now than ever because the last couple of years. Um, and so, so, so it was, how do we deal with technology? How do we keep that important interpersonal part of SACSA or does it matter? But technology was part. The second was the time pressure on our, our, on our, on our staff. And I think technology to help to create that because there was a time, um, the only person who could find you at 1 a.m. was the police chief. You know, it's not like you were getting constant messages and you could go to a conference and the only way um, you had to deal with something at home was you called in once a day to see what was going on. People, so as opposed to so you never could let things go. So there wasn't as much time for reflection. Um, and I think that is truer than ever. And I, that's not necessarily for SACSA, that's for SACSA members. So how, you know, the, the time pressure. And the third one, it was uh, how do we keep SACSA relevant in an age of increasing competition. And I think I made the comment on there that Stanley Jones or someone, you know, I, that I said that I probably got more opportunities for professional development in a week than he got in a year because of the because of the podcasts and the emails and the texts and the this and the that and the journals and all that. And so um, could SASA continue to be relevant? And, and one reason 
Saks have probably worked before is it was less expensive to go to a regional conference than it was a national. Right. It never crossed my mind to fly to a national conference or fly anywhere when I was a young professional. It just wasn't something you could pay for. And that's not as true anymore. And so it, it was, can we, is there still a place for SACSA? Um, and at that time, the question was, or is it time for us to fold and move into another organization? So those were the three that I think, and I think those are still true. And I would add the, the keeping our records of printed technology is, but now I haven't been involved in SACSA for several years. So um, I'm not as current with it as the rest of y'all are. Well, it's funny when I read your article again this morning early, um, I thought, oh my God, this is still, spot on in 2022 <laughs> mm -hmm. in terms of that section about okay. um, what are our challenges some ways they haven't changed mm -hmm. you know um, and and I think it I think it does it, it does capture what I see as the the our transition to the future you know I think the another huge challenge for organization is transitioning from Joe as the executive director to me as the executive director um, Joe's got so much institutional memory and knowledge and wisdom. Um, much of that that's in his head. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, we don't want to lose that. And how do we capture that? Um, and that's, that's, that's a more personal piece for me. Uh, how do we maintain that? Uh, you know, I think we all should be grateful to Joe and Joe's service and what Joe's done for, for this organization and for many of us personally. The one other one I would mention is not necessary for the association, maybe the profession. Um, last year, I, as I was, you know, when or whenever the pandemic happened a year and a half ago, I think I was really concerned that my former grad students were going to be out of work soon because I thought colleges are going to shut down. They're not going to have jobs, et cetera. Well, it turned out to be the exact opposite problem is that, um, you know, people started are leaving the profession, but, but, it, but, because I did that, I went in and got recertified as a career transitions per, uh, person, mostly just to make sure I was up to date on that to try to help people sort through things. Um, and then two things, I started following for a while the Facebook group on student affairs expatriates, which is um, mostly young people, but folks that are trying to get out of the field. And um, I, I was just trying to get a sense of what they were talking about so I could do this program at Saxon. And after a while, I got off of it because the energy was just a little too negative for me and, and my, my current thing. But there's, um, I think we as a profession have to figure, well, I don't know why they can't pay us anymore. Well, it's not like McDonald's can raise, the, they can raise the prices of their hamburgers and pay you more money. You know, if for a university to suddenly start paying you more money, the legislature is going to have to decide to do it. And Ultimately, somebody's got to pay for it, and that's going to be tuition, et cetera. But I think, I think the changing nature of, of what people are willing to do and how they're willing to do it, and um, there's an awful lot of people in there that are talking about horrible work environments, and I don't know if they're horrible or if these are people. I don't know that, but I think that's an issue. Um, and I think related to that, it's a part of that. I think I read recently that 16% of higher ed employees had left in the last year, had left the profession, and that's higher ed as a whole. So I think that's going to be a, not necessarily a SACSA issue, but it's a profession issue, is we may be making some real sea change in the profession, but we don't really know right now. And so can SACSA be a part of responding to that? Um, I've chatted, we had a group a long time ago called the SACSA Scholars that was um, faculty members and senior uh, student affairs folks that we would just get together to talk about issues. And I wondered if like, for example, 
at least from what I'm reading, um, is there a disconnect sometimes between what they're learning in their grad programs, what they're doing in their jobs, what's happening in the profession? And so is it time to have conversations about that? So that's my, that's it for mine. Melanie, you've added a lot to my to-do list. Well, good. That's always been my goal. <laughs> and I've always been very good at that. I feel, I feel like I work for you again all of a sudden. Wait a minute, I do. <laughs> watch. Be, no, but just watch for something extra in your paycheck. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll watch the mail. Yeah. Uh, uh. As we kind of get to the end of this, which I feel like maybe is, should be the first in a series of 20 conversations <laughs> with the three of you, but um, what are your hopes, you know, as you, and, and if there's anything else that you want to speak to that I didn't ask about, or that has come to mind, but when you think about looking ahead for SACSA, what are your hopes for the organization? My hope is, um, really kind of basic. I would like to continue the growth and development of our members as the times change. Um, but I think that there is a larger issue that one who is almost 81 years old sees, which is that the times in which we are living are so very different that I'm not certain how SACSA should respond to, can respond to. Uh, we should be, in my, my opinion, we should represent the absolute best of higher education. Not to say, you know, faculty members are not important, anything like that but we are the ones who are dealing with mental health, physical health, spirituality, sexuality, all those kinds of things. And I am not certain in the society in which we live today that what I always thought was the goodness of people is coming out to where we can work with people on finding their best self. Uh, it is indeed difficult and I am very much telling you what I deal with every day in the school district, but it is very difficult to teach a young person or an old person who's an older person who's in school about how to disagree civilly when their parents are anything but. And maybe that's always been the case, um, but I've not ever seen in my lifetime, and I say this ever seen, the hate that I see now. And I grew up as a teenager in the midst of the desegregation times. And I didn't see hate then like I see hate now. And, you know, my life has been threatened. My family's been threatened. The superintendent's home has been defaced over and over again. And it's not about anything that's really important, folks. I mean, it's about whether we're going to wear a mask or get a vaccination. And that's a, that's a whole different kind of hate to me 
than being afraid because somebody is a different color. I mean. Oh, Joe, that's, oh, yeah, there's a lot to reflect on in that, that, oh. I didn't um, mean to do that like no, that. I'm no, sorry. no, I just, it's just because I agree with you on so many levels. And yeah, you know, and I was thinking for me when I think about what I hope for the future, I hope, I hope people get out of Saxa what I got out of it, but that seems so lame compared, <laughs> so lame compared. Oh, to that, your, I'm, I'm good for those things again, though. It's you know, good. I, I want them to have the experience that we all had. Uh, that, that, that how it shaped our career, how it gave us a Saxa family of people that are as important to me as my real family, you know, that, that um, that's great. You know, uh, I, I, that's what I hope for the future that Saxa can continue to do. I think it's, you're right, though, it's going to be harder to do in the context of the world we're living. And we've got to find a way to make that happen because that has been our, it's been our core strength you know, is the people and the members and the collegiality. And, you know, I go back to that core value and, and we got to find, it's going to be a struggle, but I'm hopeful that we can, we can find ways to do that in a world that is very divisive at the moment. The struggle is always to be more human. Yeah. We are. And this is uh, a good time for that. So. Yes. Um, my simple way, again, more like Tony was to begin with, I just want Saxon to remain relevant, um, to, to be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem as all this is going on. But again, as I reflect on those conversations I, I, I read on the expatriates thing, is um, I hope we can keep helping young people realize this is a calling. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there are some people that will say that and they're very, very dismissive about, well, my boss thinks it's a calling, that's ridiculous. Um, and I'm like, well, I'm okay then if you're leaving the profession. That's fine. You know, bye. <laughs> you know, let, me, let me help you. <laughs> yeah, let me help you pack. I'll pack. So, no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say that. But I mean, I, mean, I do really think you have to find the right fit. And so this is not, uh, and, and I do understand that I'm not in the middle of this. So I'm not having to deal with how difficult this is every day, but I'm reading and absorbing it. But I do hope we can um, help, help people begin to understand, to begin to appreciate that. And to recognize that, um, then that this association can help provide the support to get it through that, as well as a professional development help them be successful um, in that. So, well said, Michelle. Before we leave, I, I, I want to just make one suggestion for anybody who watches this, and for the four of us too. By the way, I, I, I mean, I love the telling of stories. That's kind of my. Uh, my daughter gave me this thing called StoryWorth, and every week I get a, a subject from her that I have to write on, and at the end of the year, I'll have a book kind of thing, you know. But what a grand idea to make me do what I have said I was going to do for a long, long time. But on another note, I have a really good friend here in town, Beth Howells, and Beth is an English professor was at Armstrong. She's now at Georgia Southern as head of the language department. And Beth's New Year's resolution last year, which I think we could all profit from, was in the 52 weeks of the year to take a walk with a different person every week by invitation. And she, I think she ended up making 50 of the 52 weeks last year. 
And some, some walks were 20 minutes, some were four hours, you know, so, I mean, but think about people that you would like to spend more time with and listen to. I think it's a grand way to establish our humanity again, so. I love that. And it, it actually is a nice transition. So I have one question for you all. Um, and it kind of ties to looking to the future and practices, you know, and humanizing our world a little bit more. But would each of you share something that's, that is giving you hope right now? Um, and it can be related to what we've been talking about. It can be personal. It can be a pet, you know, whatever it is. But Melanie, would you mind going first on this one? Yeah, um, I mentioned that my, my last job was um, working with community engagement. And so I had a lot of work with the local, not local here, but in Carrollton, the um, nonprofit community. And during the pandemic in particular, I said our community foundation started doing weekly um, and then later on monthly Zoom calls with anybody in the, in the um, nonprofit world who wanted to be on them just to talk about how they were handling the kind of pandemic. And I was their note taker. And I was just so impressed to watch how creative so many of them were that they weren't spending their time whining about how awful the world was and how terrible this was and getting on Twitter and whatever. They were just saying, it's a problem. We can't treat, we can't, we don't have any more older volunteers. They have to be inside. So how are we going to find some younger volunteers? We can't do this. How are we going to do this? So I have, I think it, it, it I think if I spent too much time on social media, um, I could only see the negative side of the world. You know, the people that are constantly complaining or degrading each other or the news stories about these, how people are treating each other that Joe talks about. But I'm glad that I keep getting exposed to people who are just keeping their heads down and doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not out there. Uh, they're being a part of the problem, a part of the solution rather than the problem. And so I'm encouraged by that um, almost every day that I, I see someone that's doing that. So that's what keeps me. I'm hoping uh, there are more of those. The others are just louder. Yeah, that's true. Well, it kind of ties to what you were talking about with SACSA and task force. Um, I wrote it down because you said, who are the problem solvers? Mm-hmm. And I think what we hear about are who are the problem creators, right? And I come from conduct. I love problem creators. <laughs> I just don't want to listen to them 24 <laughs> seven. Um, but this idea of who, who are the people working towards solutions. So I, I appreciate you highlighting that. That's really important. And I will say one thing before you turn it to Tony, because he's probably think, thinking the same thing, that when we were much younger professionals at Mississippi State, and one of Gene Tice's favorite things was, the world's got pl- plenty of problem identifiers. I need problem solvers. Yes, yes. And so, <laughs> That's great. How about you, Tony? What, what brings you hope? Uh, you know, that I finally understand what Verna Howe always said to me, which was work to live, not live to work. Mm. Um, you know, Verna Howe said that to me many a time because I do have a tendency to work a lot and I'll own that. Um, and that's been a pattern. And uh, Verna always said, Tony, I need you to, to, you know, live to work, not work to live. And, and, Go do the things that find you joy. And so I'm finding hope in 
spending time with people that are positive and I do appreciate and I do want to spend time with. I find hope in reading and um, those things that do bring me joy, whether it's a mystery novel, as Melanie talked about, or if it's a more serious one. Um, I find hope spending hope with students. You know, some of the grad students constantly amaze me uh, and give me hope for the profession. Um, so those kinds of things, but that that sort of, you know, um, live, you don't live to work, you, you work to live and work allows you to do those other things to have a great partner and have great friends and uh, great family and great jobs and all those things. So uh, that just recognizing that has given me hope. I finally understand it, Verna, if you're listening. <laughs> That's great. All right, Joe, you want to bring it home? What What's yeah, your hope? Um, I, I realized when Melanie referred a minute ago, I must sound more negative than I really feel, but uh, <laughs> living with it like I have had to live with it, um, what I have discovered over the last two years of the pandemic, uh, there's a bridge about a block from my house on the water and that's my prayer bridge. And I find from that prayer bridge every morning or every day, I can see the sunrise as well as I can see the sunset. And so I look forward to every day, but I'm okay with the fact that it sets later in the day. Um, and saying that through the pandemic, as we as adults have screamed at each other, I have watched K-12 kids because that's who I work with now, put their mask on and be as creative as they can be. And when they walk out of school, even though their mom says they hate their mask, I watch them walk all the way home on the street with their mask on because that's what somebody told them to do. Uh, so on, our, on mine and Marilyn's New Year's card this year, because we didn't get Christmas cards out. It says, it is a picture of a sunrise that says, I hope for you many sunrises in 2022. And uh, I say the best is yet to come on that card. So that's, I'm so optimistic about the world. Just sometimes the people make me sick in my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, can I add one thing? Yeah, please. Joe, Joe's comment made me think of that. Um, I signed up for some website, and I'm not really sure how, where I get an inspirational quote every day. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is, I find, a little bit ironic. Today's quote was from Angela Davis that said, walls turn sideways are bridges. Mm -hmm. And I think Joe's comment about we need to take those walls and find ways to break them down and make a bridge sure. to find our humanity, to find our commonality to find our decency and that quote just it sort of sums up much of what we talked about um and literally it just popped up on my computer uh and i find that sort of appropriate uh for the conversation we've had yeah well this has really been you, you all have given a gift to the listeners to the organization selfishly because it's all about me to me <laughs> to be able to be a part of this conversation as a listener with you. Um, so thank you for your time. I know that 
Um, I feel like a <clears throat> subtext of this is that time really is a gift. And for you to choose to share some time with us, that's greatly appreciated. So, um, and just one sort of closing thought or observation about SAXA, and I heard this come up in a number of ways through each of your comments, um, but I think I got the language for it, Joe, when you were talking about Ellen taking a, a flight overnight to get back to SAXA. I feel like there's something about SAXA that once you're in it, you never leave it. You know, there are people who are outside of the region who still are very actively engaged. And sure. so that's that's another gift, I think, because that's not true of every organization. Yeah. And it's right. not that you leave with hostility, but it's like, well, I don't live there anymore. So this is where I live now. And um, SAXA seems to be portable and, and people carry it with them. So. Well, I, again, thanks to each of you. I also want to thank SAXA um, for their support of the podcast, for having an organization so we could do this episode. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had anything to talk about if there wasn't a SAXA. Additionally, the show would not be possible without Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida, who is the editor, um, or I'm sorry, producer for the show. So thanks always to you, Jen. I appreciate your collaboration. And as we close, I'd like to leave with a quote. This one comes from Biz Stone. And the quote is, when you hand good people possibility, they do great things. Again, I think that represents so much of the organization and the things that you all shared today. Thanks to each of you who are listening. Again, my name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. Take care and have a beautiful day. Thanks again, everyone.